Uh, Father, we thank you for Andrew and the great gifts you've given him in understanding and teaching your word. Thank you how you've blessed that word uh, over many years on the Central Coast. We ask please now you give him clarity of thought that he might speak with your authority. We ask you to speak to us through your word and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you get your Bibles out, we'll look at uh, Luke chapter 12. How about I read Luke chapter 12, verse 1. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling one another... Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you who you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about what you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. I want to talk to you uh, about expectations and uh, I guess it's fairly self-evident that your, what you expect will shape powerfully your ability to deal with things. Um, it, uh, I remember very vividly the, before you had kids, the things you ought to do. You ought to, um, you ought to go and get the newspaper and one Sunday afternoon, read it from beginning to end, because that'll be the last time you ever do it when you get kids. You ought to get a rake and drag along the side of both cars, because that's what the car will look like after you've had kids. You ought to get uh, uh, arrowroot biscuits, uh, put them in the sink, wet them, and stick them in all the ashtrays of the car and down the back of every couch. And you ought to take your wallet and go to the chemist store and empty it all on the counter at the chemist store with credit cards and everything and say just take it because that's what it'll be like when you've got kids now I, like that's a helpful little thing and the last one was before you've got kids you ought to go and speak to someone who's got kids about how they ought to parent because that's the last time you'll be an expert about <laughs> kids once you've got them it'll stop it, once you've got expectations about what it really will be like it does make it easier to deal with things, isn't that right? So that um, if you expect marriage to be easy, once you get in it and it's difficult, it, you'll, you'll falter, you'll fall apart. It'll be such a shock and surprise. Getting good expectations is really very helpful to help us um, avoid foolishness. Now, this is true of all the dimensions of life. It's especially true of your life with Jesus and being a Christian and being a minister of the gospel and being a church planter. Uh, and there's a sense in which I want to suggest to you tonight that chapter 12 of Luke's Gospel, there's, 
In part, this is the burden of Jesus' teaching. There's a great deal he says through this whole chapter, and I'm actually going to touch on a whole bunch of stuff through the chapter. Uh, It is worth reflecting on each aspect of the chapter at great length, but for our sake tonight, I plan to move through a whole large amount of material and draw out the things that stand behind each dimension or each each aspect of the material. I want to talk about the, the, the ideas, the assumptions that operate behind it that give rise to the teachings that Jesus is giving us. And here's, here it is. What Jesus says uh, is he's, he's teaching what it will be like to be his follower, what expectations you ought to have. He's going to be talking about how critical eternity is in our life now. And he's going to be talking about what God is like. So three things. Expectations, eternity, and it'd be nice if it was e-God, but it's just God. So expectations, eternity, and God. That's where we're going. Let me show you the first one. We're going to leave the first few verses of chapter 12 uh, and pick it up straight away in verse 4. These are extraordinary words. Listen to these. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body and after that do no more. I show you who you should be afraid of. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, what stands behind those words? What stands behind them is an assumption that there will be a situation, will very well be a situation, where the people he's addressing, and he's addressing his disciples here, Uh, verse uh, 1, there is a very real possibility that the people he's addressing will be tempted to fear one who could kill their body. And Jesus says to them, don't. I know that's what's going to happen. Don't be afraid of them. The assumption is that it will be a context they have to live through. Now, you know this is the case because when you come down to chapter 12, verse 11... Uh, he's anticipating that they will be brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities and the problems that that will all bring. Um, The assumption that he's operating with is that the death of the body is on the cards for his disciples. Now, it's on the cards because of the shape of the world that Jesus moved within. Uh, It was a world that was hell-bent, a world that by nature was opposed to God and the things of God, that doesn't even want to know that it's offside with God. And so the end of chapter 11, uh, Jesus critiques the, the, the Pharisees, uh, the, those that haven't repented, who have turned harder against the things of Christ. Uh, he's aware that this is a context and culture. He knows that to bring the truth of God into our world won't make everyone love him and it won't make those who follow him be loved. It means he will die, he must die. You remember he addresses this a number of times, the Son of Man must be killed. Uh, He will be rejected and he says to his followers, if you're going to follow me, if they did this to me, be aware they'll do it to you. And it's explicit. You come over to chapter, chapter 12, verse 49. I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. I have come, verse 51, do you think I came to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but division. 
From now on, there'll be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, two against three. They'll be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Here is not Jesus expressing that the ministry of our churches can be friends with the city. Here is a ministry that will bring division. And Jesus is establishing the context and the expectations. And in the midst of the crowds that are flocking to him, he says to his disciples, don't be afraid of the one who kills the body. Why even raise it? Because if you follow me, that will be your lot. It will be painful. It'll be painful in large things and it'll be painful in inner things. Let me take you through this. Jesus now spins into, uh, from this section, a division of an inheritance. Now, there's much again here that we can't go through, um, uh, but notice again what lies beneath it. Uh, Verse uh, 14, go there. Someone's asked him to divide the inheritance. Jesus replies, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Why does Jesus say this? Because the expectation is that being in this new kingdom will be a battle against covetousness. The Christian life will be a battle. It'll be a battle against, in this case, the temptations of greed. That will be the normal expectation. And there is this common idea through Jesus' teachings. of this kind of problem that he has to face. I mean, you summarise the big challenges that Christians will have to face in the world. Here's one of those things, as we began a couple of days ago, you you hear a question asked of Jesus, how do you think he might answer it? A question's posed to Jesus, what will be the big problems that Christians will have to face in this world? What are our big challenges? What are the things that we need to be on our guard against? What do you think you'd say? How do you think your congregations would answer that? How do you think people around us would answer that? Well, Jesus answers it by saying... The two big things, greed and family. They're the two big dangers. They're the two things that occupy a great deal of his attention as he preaches. Be on your guard, which means you are under under constant threat living as a follower of Jesus in this world with a fallen nature And the danger that you will constantly face, the danger that we constantly face, brothers and sisters, is to drift into thinking that life is about things. The expectation, therefore, of the normal Christian life, what the normal Christian life looks like, is opposition, loss, pain, inner battle and external opposition. Be on your guard, says Jesus. Verse 22, he addresses the realities of anxiety. He says to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear, for life is more than food and the body is more than clothes. Don't worry about these things because I know you'll be tempted to worry about them. He needs to then have a set of extended teaching on combating anxiety. He says it's a real and present problem, it's a danger. He comes to verse 32 
Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Now, I find this extraordinarily helpful, which we'll come back to in a second, actually. There's a cure for fear. We'll come back to it. The last one there is in verse 35. Be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning. Be men and women servants waiting for their master to return. What's the expectation here? Jesus is giving them the expectations of some delay. It's a second or third watch. I mean, if it's only a few hours that I'm having to wait, it's kind of easy. I could do that. Um, But years? I've uh, I've got a 22-year-old son who house-sat a family last year sometime. He spent some time in their house and... uh, we, we, we kind of tried to help him, encourage him to keep the house cleaning, you know, because they had a cleaner, this family that would come through. And um, uh, after some month or so, the parents came back, the family came back and discovered the cleaner took one walk into the house that he and his three mates were minding after only a couple of days and fled crying because it was, I mean, you'd think you could keep it clean for a little while, but anyway, three blokes lobbed in and it was, if it was years... If it was years that you were minding this house and waiting and waiting, never sure when they'd return, you can imagine how much difficult it is to live with that kind of long, ongoing expectation. And Jesus is saying the expectation of the Christian life is that you will often feel that the Lord is absent. That's the expectation. That's normal Christian living. That that we'll be waiting for him to return and we'll go through periods where we need to keep at it disciplined, on our guard, aware that he's not yet returned, will he come back, it feels like he may never. That's normal Christian living. Now that's, unpacking all of that's worth spending more time, but note what lies behind all of this. Jesus is operating with a way of thinking about what life will be like when he's gone He's thinking about what it will be like for those that that hand over their lives to Jesus, hand the reins of their life over to Jesus, become followers of Jesus. And what it will be like is conflict. Serious conflict. Battles without, opposition and hostility. Battles within, with a nature that wants to rest up, give in to temptation into covetousness, greed, anxiety, fear. There'll be battles with delay. Where is this coming he spoke of? Inspired? Doesn't quite feel so inspiring, does it? Or does it, actually? I, um, I was on a plane, I'm spending a bit of time playing, I was on a plane and, I, you know, you get those free movies. I watched uh, Red Dawn. Now, I don't know if anyone's seen Red Dawn. It's actually not too bad. But uh, it was free, so I thought I'd um, watch it. About an American, it's an American thing where, I don't, I don't think Ed's with us, so it's a shame. Um, but it's about an American country town, a town that where, where um, the North Koreans, I think, land and, uh, and begin to take over America and so on. And a small group of teenagers fight back and inspire a whole uprising and win and all that. But there's a point in the movie where the first group of teenagers who began the battle against the invaders, um, uh, 
they're, they're finally broken through the first conflict and the first victory, if you'd like, but they're beginning to gather another group, a new group who have come to them inspired by their victories. And the leader, the young leader of this teenage group who'd kind of done battle and won some victory, stands up and says this. He says, I'm going to fight. It's easier for me because I've done it before. The rest of you are going to have a tougher choice. I'm not going to sell it. It's too ugly for that. Now, that is not American, is it? And that, like, if an American... Forgive me, Ed, wherever you are, but if an American got up to inspire people to come on a journey, typically they'd get up and talk about the great success and how we can take that mountain and we're going to... This movie portrayed the leader getting up and saying, it's too ugly for me giving you that inspiring story. And I find out, of course, that the lead player is Australian. So I felt right at home. But what he does is that kind of Anzac Gallipoli spirit where he says, he says, this is going to be tough. It's going to be ugly. But we are going to give ourselves to it. Now, that is the Lord Jesus. We bag out Australian culture quite a bit, and it's not a bad thing to do. We need to keep healthy. But there's something about the Australian culture that's actually very good. And it is that kind of culture of... Uh, be honest with me, tell me how tough it is, tell me what it's going to be like and I, I'm just going to man up and keep pressing on. That's what the Lord Jesus is doing here. He's not going to sell it, it's too ugly for that. He's not going to tell you to become a Christian and make life wonderful and successful, all your dreams will come true, he's not going to sell it like that. He says, come follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. It's the narrow path. The broad path leads to destruction. Many are on it. Now, I actually think that resonates and there's something good about our culture within which that resonates. Although, I dare say in recent years we are less and less well-equipped for this call of God. We have all grown up in a time of prosperity and we, through our schooling, have been fed the success line from our earliest. We've been fed the line that if you work hard, be smart, you can have it all, it'll be yours, more than your parents ever got. I dare say we are less well-equipped for this kind of life than we might once have been. And I'm afraid that in our churches we aren't helping people be equipped for this life either. We have people being told in churches, and it's happening around us, we're getting it all the time coming through to us, that the expectation is that if they're in the Spirit, if they're in the will of God, it will be easy. We have churches that want so much to win the crowd that they are working hard at selling how good the gospel is, and it is good, but you can't help but notice that when you look at the Lord Jesus and His ministry, He... He, his strategy is very different. It's, it's um, don't come to me unless you're ready to pay. Uh, and then as you come in, you'll find how wonderful it is. We tend to operate in the reverse. Come, it's so wonderful. Oh, and by the way, it'll cost. Um, now, I'm not saying to make the gospel as unattractive as possible, but there is a crucial role in setting expectations in Christian ministry for those that we're calling on to follow Jesus. You know, I find one easy application in our context uh, for young people particularly. 
is to say to them, you come to the Lord Jesus and you are being bound now to come to church as a follower of Christ every weekend for the rest of your life. And that very small thing makes people go, what? (laughs) That is what it is to follow the Lord Jesus. Every week to be here for the rest of your days. Now, there's nothing heroic about it. You're to be here whether you feel like it or not, whether you're having a good time or not. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To be part of his people, to own what it is to be part of his people. Well, finding ways to help expectations be driven home, to see the seriousness of what it is to actually turn your whole life and now have an allegiance to the Lord Jesus and not to come finding the super coach who will make my life better. Now, it isn't hard physically being a Christian at present in our culture at the moment. Around the world, of course, Christians are still being killed for their faith and in this country, uh, it's not hard to anticipate that in the next 20 years, we will be going to prison for our faith. And part of our task as ministers of the gospel is to prepare people for that, to help them appreciate that's normal Christianity. Now, many of you already know this, many of you know it at home. Um, A a friend uh, uh, passed on the story of a girl who met and got married to a Christian. She was converted, she met a young man converted and they got married. Her parents were atheists And they were so angry with the union, they refused to go to the wedding. And that happened in Australia. So it is happening. It's extraordinary. That's normal Christianity. I had this wonderful little moment, which... uh, So we've just put up a new building that's open in the next um, two weeks, actually, before Christmas. And my parents, who live in Sydney, uh, came up to have a look at it. And uh, they're in their 80s. And... uh, Uh, so I was taking them through the building and one of the builders, one of the carpenters who was working on the stage um, saw us at the back of the building and came up, a great Christian man in our church, and he said, ah, Mr. and Mrs. Hurd, Billy and Dennis, yeah, yeah, said hello, and uh, and said, look, you know, I've got a son who's doing what your son did. I've got a son, I was a civil engineer, I've got a son who's a civil engineer who's giving it up to go into the ministry. And um, and how awesome is that? Well, my mother... Uh, looked at him and then looked at me, because she's a very short lady now, and uh, she said with this kind of somewhat wryish, embarrassed smile and said, we actually gave him a very hard time when he left engineering to do ministry. And that was quite an underestimation. <laughs> it, it was this, when I told them that I was, that my parents aren't believers, they're not Christians, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, I grew up in a church sending home, And when I told them that I was planning to leave to go and become a minister, my father said, if I can remember his words, he said, um, no son of mine will be a bludger on society because that's how he perceived Christian ministry. After all we've done for you, you're going to throw it all away to become a bludger, Uh, just a limpid sucking the life out of community. Now, we had a massive fight. So my mother... We weren't very good to him. <laughs> it was huge. It was massive. Now, in my experience, 
That was big, but compared to many, it's not much. But that's normal Christianity. And I heard uh, uh, one among us share going to New Zealand created some similar hostility at home. That is normal Christianity. And if you're enjoying less than that, then that's unusual. It's not wrong, it's lovely, but it's unusual. There is Jesus setting the expectations of what it would be like to follow him. But what follows that, I'm going to suggest to you, is two more points, which is Jesus' way of dealing with it. And here are the second, third points. Come back with me to the beginning of chapter 12 and verse 4. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more, but I'll show you who should fear. Fear him who after killing the body has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Don't fear him who can kill the body. Fear him who after that can throw you into hell. What is going on here? Um, having someone kill the body on its own is a very powerful force to impose on someone. But what Jesus is saying quite clearly is there's something far more important at stake in life than your physical well-being. Now, that concept in our day is shocking. We are obsessed with safety and well-being and health. The worst thing imaginable for us is that we might lose our health or our child might lose their life or that we might lose our life. The most powerful pull on someone's heart is now. We talk about the things we need now a lot. Um, do you know, um, in church... The times I never get complaints about a sermon are when I preach about us being generous to others, giving to people in physical need, sacrificing to give to others in physical need, bending every effort to give. I never get any complaints. Um, but what I get, friends, is, is when I talk about the spiritual need and giving to that, I get lots of calls to be balanced. Why is that? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? Because we get the physical need very easily. It's easy to defend it. It's easy to feel good about it. It's easy to feel it's appropriate. The spiritual one, we can't see. It's not as obvious. But that, of course, is the greater need because don't fear him who can kill the body. That's a nothing. I'll tell you the one who you should fear. The one who, after having killed the body, can throw you into hell. How is he able to say that? Well, because of his view of eternity, of time. We are eternal creatures. Life now is just a moment. And when that perspective is owned, not just believed, when it's real to you and deeply real, this life shifts from being all-consuming and all-important. It is just a moment. Craig, one of the guys on our staff, used a very helpful illustration. I found it personally helpful, and whether you do, I don't know. But he talked about time like a string. And he said, imagine a piece of string that uh, starts here on the lectern and you know, falls down to the ground and then rolls down the aisle, running out through the door and then out onto the street. And this string continues and it runs down the road. It was at Westminster. And then turns right, then left, and heads down past Rudy Hill RSL and then heads out to Penrith and then rolls up to the mountains 
and heads out to Lithgow and then gets out to Bathurst and heads all its way out through the outback, there is time. And he said, the life that we live is the one centimetre just here. It's minuscule. It's a moment. It's a breath in the context of eternity. When you get that vision of eternity, it recasts how you think about life. It recasts what you are afraid of. It recasts the concerns that you might otherwise have for yourself. You know, I um, tell you about Anthony Bramall, uh, who's a, I think he's still a lecturer at SMBC, is that right? Yeah. Anthony Bramall was a link missionary with our church some years ago. What, uh, and uh, so he was in Indonesia. And uh, he was in the context of um, being in Indonesia when there was an Islamic uprising, there was um, a jihad declared, and Westerners, it was a very, very scary time. Now, he has three daughters, four daughters, um, and um, they were, we're talking years ago now, very young children. And he was back uh, in Australia, and I said to him one time, um, and you, you've got to be concerned about your kids and how all that... And he, he said to me, he looked me straight in the face and he said, Andrew, there are more concerning things than losing your life. He meant it because he had genuinely embraced the reality of eternity. To lose our life is a nothing compared to the importance of winning souls from hell. Now that's someone who's... It changes your perspective. But can you imagine a pagan hearing that and understanding that in any sense? That my concern for my family and their physical well-being is not as great as the concern for the spiritual well-being of those around me. And even my family, that I model to them that I care most about eternity. Now, there's wisdom and you've got to weigh all of that up. This, this insight runs through all of Jesus' teaching, a vivid awareness of eternity. And when you get it powerfully, life becomes very simple. Um, let me... Um, uh, pick up one of the, the just a, a quick easy thing um, uh, the, the issue of hypocrisy uh, you know everything we say will be shouted from the mountaintops when you understand the reality of eternity and what life will be then then it makes a great foolishness that we could pretend that we can hide here and now when you understand eternity there's nothing that can be hidden to live in hypocrisy is a great foolishness when you understand eternity. Covetousness, the danger of greed. Be on your guard. How are you kept on your guard? By keeping eternity vividly in mind. The brevity of life in comparison to eternity with God, you can go without here and now when I know that I've got an abundance coming. It is only another 40 years. Really? Can't you do that? We're called to a life of that, to keep fighting, to not be shaped by things now. And one of the keys to it, only one of the keys to it, but one of the keys to it is eternal perspective. Jesus' words, of course, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his soul? Practice daily the habit of thinking about eternity. And how that floods back into the way I think about 
my 30, 40, 50 years or less, depending on the lot the Lord gives us. And so every temptation to grow weary, to let slip, to take down our guard, to care more about the physical, to grow lazy, eternity. We've only got another 30, 40 years. Do not grow weary of doing good. Through all of this undergirding perspective, there's one more thing that lies underneath it that's to stir us. And I want to suggest, this is the third point, I want to suggest it's God's love. In the context of Jesus having said not to fear those who can kill the body, but to fear the one who can cast you into hell, immediately after that, verse 6 He says these words, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Don't be afraid. God the Father has his gaze on you. He loves you. Look at verse 32. Don't be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom which then empowers you, verse 33, to sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out a treasure in heaven that will never fail. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be. Do you see what empowers us? God has been pleased to give us the kingdom in eternity so you can't lose. Giving it all up now is not a loss. You've got eternity stored up for us by a father that loves us which gives us the power then to deal with the hard things that life brings the power isn't in us it's not in our discipline it's not in our um, uh, power and strength it's it's in God being there for us we have a God who is our father who owns the world and it's his good pleasure to give the kingdom to his people And so, sell all you have. Seek first the kingdom. Don't fear. Eternity and God's care undergird us. They're powerful and radical words. Um, And I think these are Jesus' wake-up calls, aren't they? They're his core heart attitude and the more we keep close to them, the the more this world won't get its hooks in us. Now, what does it look like in practice? Uh, let me see if I can unpack some of that. And uh, is it the intention to have a question time tonight? Yep, okay. Um, let me see if I can unpack some of this in practice. Uh, it is interesting that you don't... In practice, Jesus... There's a richness to the way Jesus applies all of this. Um, um, in chapter 8, verse 3, Jesus is able to do all that he does because of a group of wealthy women who hadn't sold all they had. Now, there's something, isn't there? So, you've still got a group of people who have kept and are using it to support. So, being a follower of Jesus isn't as simple as give it all away. It's keep to give and build up to give as well in a complex and rich concept. Jesus told the rich young ruler to give it all up, Luke 18, but to another one he accepted that they only gave up half of it, Luke 19. 
Why the difference? Well, it's the pastoral setting and the need for a shake-up. You see it in the story he tells, to be rich towards God. Uh, the fool, you remember he hadn't counted eternity in his picture or a love of God and so he lived for himself and his own needs. Being rich towards God is probably the same as seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness. Um, it, it's to apply all we have, our wealth, possessions, time, energy, as to the first priority, the kingdom. The extension of it, the health of it, the building of the church, 1 Corinthians 15.58, the labour in the Lord which is serving the saints and growing the work. And... Now it takes wisdom to engage with this properly. The danger for young people, and I'm finding this danger in our context a lot now, that we're, um, we have such a culture amongst us in our church at EV of um, pursuing radical discipleship. It's quite, it's wonderful. And, but we're actually having to say to young people... Um, uh, you need to think about the long term of ministry and be wise in all of that. And that's a wonderful problem to have. We also have a problem with some of it too in that some young people are saying, awesome, I don't need to worry about all the parents' advice of spending time getting equipped and trained and doing study. I can just go for kingdom stuff, lead youth group, lead small group, lead on missions and I don't need to do any uni work. And the danger behind that is, behind the veil of being a faithful Jesus follower is really laziness and a failure to take account of others and be responsible. So 1 Timothy 5, if you don't care for your immediate family, you're worse than an unbeliever. And if we don't raise young people to see that they've actually got to develop responsibilities in the way they actually study and prepare and equip so that they can provide for, that's a problem. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28, you mustn't steal but work with your hands that you might have enough to share. They've got to get jobs and work hard enough in their jobs and not use ministry as an excuse to not actually provide for themselves and the needs of others. And 1 and 2 Thessalonians, he who doesn't work doesn't eat. So you've got all of this rich tapestry that needs to be engaged with seek first the kingdom and sell all you have and trust the Father and think eternally. And The danger for older people though is the deceitfulness of wealth. Do you know, lots of people see these verses and say, 1 Timothy 5 and Ephesians 4, 20, all, and they go, that's why I'm spending 60 hours a week working so hard because I've got to provide, I haven't got time for church, youth group or ministry or Bible study because I'm doing those other things. And what you've got really is money having whispered to them for so many years to serve me and live for me that they've stopped hearing what they need to hear, which is to give up everything for the work of the kingdom. The key in it is neither giving all away or working hard but fighting and needing to fight to keep eternity in perspective and the power of God's love so that the kingdom dominates you in the context of wisdom. So even when you go down the work path, you keep work in check and your other responsibilities in check and so you keep giving yourself fully as, as you're able to the labour of the Lord. When you buy stuff, you think through kingdom priorities. You know, is buying a house or renting a house the best way to serve the cause of the God? All of that needs to be thought through. We need to help each other do it. You choose to forego things as a habit and give it away. Earn money and then give it away is a powerful way to actually break the power of greed. And give it anywhere. I tell people in our church to give it anywhere. I don't care if you don't give it to EV, but give away lots of money. Actually, care. I care about your spiritual life, that you would 
not have materialism gripping you so much. And I'm not afraid that they will give it away and we won't have the money because they'll hear the message about the needs here as well. But they need to hear that in the context of just give, be givers, don't be bound by. Think eternally and have God's love. All of this grows out of a right way of seeing things, expectations, eternity and God. Now, friends, I'm going to pause and see if there's any... Do you want to ask anything? Oh, I could rave some more, but let's stop. Do you want to ask anything about any of that? Yeah, um, Andrew, uh, John's my name. Uh, we've met once or twice before. We have met a lot. Um, I'm just wondering what you're going to jail for in 20 years' time. Oh, wow. Uh, that, that's a serious question, but I'm just yeah, kidding, yeah, but yeah, there yeah, is yeah. a question there. Yeah, our view of marriage... Yeah, um, it, 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 it's almost... I mean, look, you can't... I'm, I'm no prophet, and we, but we will... I will be determined to keep standing for a biblical view of marriage and our community won't want that and because they're determined... Because they're determined in the view that my position against same-sex marriage is actually harming homosexual couples, they won't let me continue to have that position because it's actually the means by which they'll continue in unhealthy relationship and they'll blame me for it instead of the relationship. So I'll, the, the laws will certainly shift if same-sex marriage comes in and those of us who continue to stand for it will have the law brought against them. It's just, I think it's inevitable. So yeah, that, that's what I'm thinking. Now, I, um, we talked about Christianity and culture a little earlier. Um, I write to my member regularly and I'm participating in all kinds of concerns to actually see our... Because I care about children. <laughs> you, know, I, uh, you know, abortion, uh, same-sex marriage, these are two very big social issues that I don't mobilise our church to do it as a church, but, gee, I want us to care so much that we're engaged in these things and it's going to cause us considerable grief. Yeah, undoubtedly. And can I do that? Can I happily keep... See, this is the danger. If we don't have clear in our minds eternity and the love of God and faithfulness to the cause of the gospel and the expectations of... If we don't have all of that clear in our minds, we will rationalise away our failure to take a stand as being strategic. Oh, we, we need to take such care in all of this and help each other... That's why I'm fearful of the friends of the city thing because this kind of stuff starts as um, you can see wonderful evangelical brothers pushing a particular position to have greater evangelistic appeal and ability but it will inevitably, without great care, it will inevitably cut the nerve of our ability to be men and women who stand against the tide and stand for Christ no matter the conflict that comes. It will inevitably do that. And we need to be... In preaching, you need to be ready to say things that you know will cause people to leave. Don't do it every week. <laughs> but you need to be... You, you need to, if you're a person who's a timid person, you need to make yourself do it every two months or something. I don't know. You need to... Um, oh, that might cause a bit of... 
don't let my fear of men get in the out. Beating people up without becoming... What, do you want me to calm down? Without... Um... Yeah, just how do you week by week and still preach grace? How do, you, how do you... I mean, I hear some preachers who get to our age and they just sound grumpy. Your age. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they just sound... I can still walk. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We'll be quick on your feet and answer this one, mate. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I, I think we've got to keep finding ways to show that it's not a rule, it's a relationship rule. Let, let me explain what I mean. Um, uh, you've got a parent of a child who uh, is investing heavily in their career and in their work and they're vo- devoting all their time to work. Uh, there's a special child thing on a a um, school assembly where the child's getting presented an award and there's also a work thing on. Now, which will the parent choose? Well, the parent might end up choosing the child thing, but they'll do it distractedly and kind of fitting it in. And they'll do that because their focus is actually on work, not relationship family. Now, as soon as I say that to people, they go, that's dreadful. What do you mean there's a rule that a parent's got to go to a kid thing? No, 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 there's no rule. I don't think there's a rule. But it's dreadful that a parent in relationship with a kid wouldn't have them so focused in their life and central their life that they'd actually make things fit around them. It'd be dreadful not to do that. And they'll go, yeah, it's not a rule. It's not legalism. It's not moral. It's just that's relationship rule, isn't it? And they go, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the Lord Jesus died for you and he's concerned that you actually reorientate your whole life so that what dominates your thinking every day, every waking moment, is the cause of the kingdom. And yes, you've got other things you've got to do, but you do them like a loving parent of a child who works. It's not like work is the centre of my life and if there's a child thing, I'll drop everything because that's what matters, I'm focused there. It's not a moral rule, it's just a relational rule. Well, that's like the things of Christ. It's not a legalism, it's not a moralism, but um, he died that you might no longer live for yourself, but for him who died for you. And there's a relational rule that's playing here that flows out of the grace of knowing someone in relationship. So I keep trying to do that kind of thing with people. Tap into ways where they get it that it's not a law, it's not a moral moralism, it's relational rule. I think it's important to do, yeah. Uh, uh, I had a misconception for many years about who Jesus was referring to when he said... Fear him who has the power to throw you into hell. Could you like to state clearly, Andrew, please, who Jesus is referring to there? Yeah, uh, who is the one who has the power to throw you into hell? God. Isn't that who it is? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, it wasn't clear. Yep, that's who it is. Andrew? Um, Scott? I was... um just in, in listening to your talk, um, you're not making it easy for us. Like, you're not giving us, this is how we should live, and here's a list of ten things that we have to do, which is what we want to do. Yeah. And I think as we're young, we think everything is black and white. And we are a little bit pharisaical in the way we like to live life, because 
if you give us a list of do's, we can tick them off and we can feel good about ourselves. But what you're talking about is this rich tapestry of, of calls you've got to make and priorities you've got to put and not taking individual verses out of context and meshing this whole thing into this rich tapestry that we have to live. It's not easy for us, is it? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. It, it's, um, I think one of the things we need to resist is the thought that we're aiming for a balanced life. The, the, the community around us is after balance because they want to find the, the, my life where it comes into balance and I've, I've got just enough work and just enough leisure to make the both of them really satisfying and just enough relational, just enough holiday. All of that's in this beautiful... Christian life can't be that um, because, for a couple of reasons, we've got this constant tension of I'm seeking first the kingdom but I've got this massive heart of compassion for all needs and so as I come to a place of balance I'm, I'm actually not concerned about making my life satisfying, I'm concerned about loving and serving the needs all around me which are immense and keep growing and so I keep, Kathy and I go through this, we worked it out years ago that we, we, we stopped worrying about it what we do is we find ourselves taking on more and more and more and you find someone's got a problem, you get involved in their life and you've got leadership you've got to deal with here and you're trying to wrestle with that thing and you've got kids you've got to, and you've got all of these things building, building, building and you get to this stage where this is nuts, we can't do this, we've got to stop. So we try and start cutting back um, and we try and cut back to the more balanced life where it'll work a bit. But what we find then is as your heart is just enlarged and you see the things of Christ and you see the desperate and you get drawn back into it again... And we worked out that that's normal. That's, that's just life in a broken world and in a marriage, in church planting, uh, you, you've got to learn to live with that um, uh, dynamic of never striking balance, of constantly being able to... Wives, if I can say to you, you've got to learn to not feel guilty about saying to your husband, we need to actually cut back again. Because what happens for the wife is, in my, well, my extended experience of one wife, she, what happens with Kathy <laughs> is that she, she feels bad that she's meant to be sacrificially serving and she's not wanting to slow me down and so she doesn't want to say anything. Um, but in the end, our life together in marriage is part of the peace God's given us to actually provide a context to be able to serve. And so the health of that is important but not indulged in. And so she needs to say something and we need to work it out together where we do start to cut back and we know we'll then build back up again and cut. And that's, and that's life. Now, I was talking to some guys at dinner time, if I can keep raving for a moment. Um, it's particularly intense when you've got young kids and your church plant starting. Those early years, like I think I do probably more now than I was doing then um, and I think I'm carrying more demands than I was then but the stress of it all back then was much more intense. So it really, it hit me much more emotionally and I was drained much more powerfully. And I think it was because I'm, I'm managing babies and kids and um, uh, Kathy, who's you know, um, nurse, a nursing mother, pregnant again, and all of this stuff and trying to start a whole new work and carry the load of that in some senses isolated, although I had wonderful networks and support. So, you know, friends like Alan, what have you, but... All of that makes it very difficult. I, just a little thing to hold out to you. If you're in that place, um, I don't think the demands reduce if you've got a heart for the gospel. You will keep pushing on. 
but those intense pressures of child and early church plant will diminish to some extent. So emotionally, you'll be able to carry them a bit more. You'll be able to actually deal with the ups and downs better. Uh, so there is a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, if I can say, that will bring you into a new intense period, but it won't be as debilitating. Uh, although I'm only 35 and look at me. But... Um, <laughs> I'll pray. Uh, Father, we, uh, we ask, please, that you might help us uh, grasp uh, the expectations uh, deeply and profoundly and really of what it is that uh, it is to follow you in this world. Uh, help us uh, rejoice in those times when uh, it is smoother and we are glad that we don't suffer the kind of persecutions that many Christians do, and we thank you for that peace. Pray, please, that it might continue. But help us uh, develop the kind of character expectation that if that kind of tension comes again, that you would give us the strength, please, to not be shocked or surprised, not be debilitated by it, that you would help us to... uh, to, to, to understand the normality of it uh, and to live by your grace and strength, appreciating the balance that eternity brings, the perspective we gain by it, and the great comfort it is to know that you are our Heavenly Father who loves us, who has given us all things, who is, who is providing all we need, who is watching over every moment, who knows the grief and pain we're going through, that we can look to you and trust in you and pray to you, find strength from you. We pray, please, that these things would uh, give us the ability to stand for you firmly, faithfully, fighting the battles without and the battles within and not growing weary. We pray that we live lives that do honour and please you uh, until you return. And we ask it in Jesus' name.